Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans in the New Testament. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Into the 11th chapter of that book or letter, 16th verse of that chapter. If you don't have a, a Bible, then you can make use of the verses printed for you in this morning's bulletin. Now, if you've uh, been with us for any length of time, then you will know that we've been looking at this letter for over a year, and uh, in recent months, we've been focusing on what is the the second to last subsection of the letter, and really near the end of that subsection, chapters 9 to 11, chapters that are dealing with the whole question of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and uh, their overall lack of responsiveness, in fact, their surprising unresponsiveness to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was their promised deliverer, Messiah, the one to whom all their prophets had pointed, the one who was prefigured and foreshadowed by and in all that had happened in the history of God's people. At any rate, the Jewish people had not responded very well to, at all to Jesus, and a lot of people wondered about that. What did that mean? And Paul deals with that subject, that problem, if you will, in his letter to the Romans, amongst other things he deals with. We've seen that in chapters 9 and 10, in addressing that, Paul talks about what is behind the Jews' curious unresponsiveness. Namely, the actions and purposes of God himself that that have a wider purpose in view, and along with that, the choices and decisions of God's people. In short, what lies behind the Jews' unresponsiveness is both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But then what does all that mean? Does Israel's current resistance to the gospel, does her hardened heart mean that that God's finished with her? Has he abandoned his promises and turned his back on his people? That's the question Paul deals with in the first part of chapter 11. He answers it quite firmly. He says, no, God hasn't rejected or abandoned his people. Okay, then, asked Paul, if, if that's true, God hasn't abandoned Israel or his promises, and yet has brought about the hardening of their hearts that undergirds their unresponsiveness. If all of that's true, and it is, then what's, what's going on? How does all that work out? How are we to understand these things and make sense of them? Paul deals with that in Romans 11, 7 to 15, which we saw last week, and in which he focuses on the, the stunning revelation that God has a saving purpose behind the hardening of his own people's hearts. What was that purpose? It's simply this. As a result of the hardening of the hearts amongst God's people, culminating in the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, but in the wake of all of that, the work of the kingdom actually widened out to include reaching the Gentiles as the apostles and chiefly Paul turned their attention from the Jewish people to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, who by contrast were much more responsive to the message of the gospel. And so through that, through that hardening of their hearts, the gospel went out to the nations just as the prophets had said it would. But God's designs went beyond that even. Not only was it God's plan and purpose to use the rejections of Israel to bring in the Gentiles, it was his further purpose to use the response of the Gentiles to then provoke a godly jealousy amongst the people of Israel which ultimately would result in a turning to God by some of them, and thus they would be saved. In short, not only was it true that God hadn't rejected the Jewish nation or people, it was also true that God still had plans 
to save many of them. Drawing them to himself, leading them to embrace the Lord Jesus. All of which then leads us to the verses before us this morning, Romans eleven sixteen to 24. In these verses, Paul wants to underscore and highlight this truth that God does indeed intend to still redeem his people, Israel. And because of that, he has a word to say to the Gentiles, a word of caution. And that word of caution will be the focus of our attention this morning. Before we go any further, please, please pray with me. Great Father in heaven, we approach you together to ask that you please inhabit this time and these moments by your Spirit's powerful presence within us individually and amongst us corporately. Would you please patiently escort us to that place in our hearts and minds where we have a right understanding of this word before us, which means knowing not only what it means, but why it matters. Even further, would you reveal yourself to us by means of these words so that we meet you in this text, so that we hear you speaking to us by means of these very words. And would you then change us by your truth and by these particular truths as only you can. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let me invite you now to listen as I read from God's completely reliable, absolutely sufficient word, which matters more and more, at least to me, all the time as I get older. Everything in this life changes. Nothing, I mean, nothing in this life is certain. Everything changes and fades except... Accept this. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Our examination of these verses is going to consist of five movements this morning. We're going to look briefly at verse 16, which is both a summary and an introduction. And then we're going to see four things. An attitude to avoid, a misperception to abandon, a warning to heed, and a hope to embrace. 
Firstly, let's think for a moment about verse 16 and how it functions with regard to this passage and then the one that precedes it. Uh, verse 16 is this. If the dough offered its first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. In these verses, Paul gives two different images, very close together, but basically saying the same thing. The first image is taken most likely from some things found in Numbers 15 and is alluding to this Old Testament practice whereby when the harvest first came in, uh, people took some of the first fruits from that harvest, that is some of the first grains that were harvested, and set that apart for the Lord. And as such, it was holy. It was consecrated to the Lord. And what Paul seems to be saying is that if the first portion was consecrated to God, then so was anything, a cake or a loaf, anything that's made from it. Likewise, if the root of a particular plant or tree is holy, then so is anything else that springs from that plant or that tree. For example, branches. And what Paul seems to have in view, according to Morris, is, is the patriarchs in general, and Abraham in particular, who was set apart by God, blessed by God, and then that blessing had consequences for what came from him, his descendants. And these two images are coming in the context of what Paul has just said about God using the Gentiles to evoke a godly envy amongst the Jews and thus save some of them. In other words, Paul not only hopes for that reality of his people being saved, but he actually sees it as necessarily flowing from the fact of God's blessings to Abraham. But this verse not only concludes some things said in the previous verses, it introduces what's coming up in verses 17 to 24. So the certainty that there are blessings yet to be realized amongst God's people... Israel, that certainty is something that fuels now Paul's words of caution and warning to the Gentiles, which leads to the next point. The first word of caution found there in verse 17 to 18, we read it again. But if some of the branches are broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in amongst the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Now, in order to make some sense of this, it helps to know, for example, that the olive tree is uh, an Old Testament image that stands for God's people, Israel. The branches of the people that belong to Israel, the ones that are broken off, then represent the vast majority of Jewish peoples whose hearts have been hardened and who have then been cut off from the Lord who are unresponsive to Him, who turn away. The wild olive shoot represents the non-Jews, the Gentiles, who've responded to the good news of Jesus Christ and have become identified with the people of God as spiritual descendants of Abraham, see Romans 4. And so now they're co-inheritors of the blessings and promises, which is what reference to the sharing and the nourishing roots is all about. And Paul's word then, right? Paul's word to this wild olive shoot, these Gentiles that have now been included, is simply this. Don't be arrogant toward those who have been cut off, the unresponsive Jews. Don't be prideful toward them. Don't imagine that you are somehow better or somehow superior to them. And as an incentive toward this, Paul reminds him, it's not you who support the root, it's the root that supports you. In other words, Paul wants the Gentiles to remember that their salvation, their deliverance is completely related to God's original promises and covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Right? The Gentiles aren't being saved apart from that. 
they're not being saved in isolation from that. They're being saved ultimately in fulfillment of that. So far from disparaging or despising or looking condescendingly down upon the unresponsive Jews or glorying in their hardship, the Gentiles should be grateful. They should be deeply grateful for God's faithfulness to his covenant with them and for the promises and blessings to which they've now graciously been made co-heirs. That's the first word of caution to the Gentiles. Don't be arrogant toward the unresponsive Jews because it's the promises to them of which you have now been made partakers. The second word of caution is found in verses 19 to 20. Then you'll say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So this is the response of the Gentiles. Then you will say, branches are broken off so I might be grafted in. That's true, says Paul. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. In addition to having an attitude to avoid of arrogance, there's a perception here. Or perhaps a misperception to abandon. To be sure, some branches were broken off. That is, God had hardened the hearts of many Jews, which did and has resulted in Gentiles being included or grafted in amongst the people of God. But as Paul points out, they were grafted in through faith. Which is to say, not through works. Not as a result of merit or superior living or greater deservedness or anything like that. They're grafted in through faith. In other words, Paul wants to make sure that the Gentiles don't misunderstand what is going on here. He wants them to make sure they always remember how they got where they are. It wasn't because they were impressive people. They're not where they are because they were more deserving than the Jews. They had no grounds for boasting, no grounds for feeling superior or more worthy, no grounds for self-congratulation. And all of this brings to mind some things that God said to his people Israel way back when in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Maybe these words sound familiar to you. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over. They're about to go into the promised land, right? been wandering and wandering in the wilderness. You're to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations that are greater and mightier than you. Cities great and fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim whom you know and of whom you've heard. And it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations The Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. These are God's words through Moses, right? To the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 9. These are God's words to them right before they go in to take this land. Three times he says it. Three times in this little paragraph. It is not because of your righteousness 
that you are getting this place, that you are getting these promises. And please note, that's just chapter 9. This is the fourth time in a row that God has addressed them on this matter. Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 13. And when the Lord your God brings you to the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. But Moses isn't finished. Deuteronomy 7, he says it again. For your people hold to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples are on the face of the earth. But it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord would set his love on you and choose you, and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And then he can't help himself. He says it again, Deuteronomy 8, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. This is, this is language of pride here. Your heart be lifted up in pride and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Deuteronomy 6, 7, 8, and 9. Four times in a row, Moses says this to them. You are not here because of yourself, but in spite of yourself. You are here because of me, says God. Which means there is one emotion you should be feeling here. And it's not arrogance. It's not pride. It's fear. It's the kind of fear, it's a form of respect or awe or wonder. The fear that comes from being humbled by your unworthiness and by God's graciousness to you in spite of all that. So that's Deuteronomy, God's word to his people Israel. Fast forward now to the book of Romans and Paul is looking at the Gentile believers who've received this wonderful privilege and blessing of being brought in, of being grafted in, belonging to the people of God. And Paul is looking at them, and he's giving them the Gentile version of Deuteronomy 6 to 9. The Gentile version of Deuteronomy 6 to 9 saying, don't be arrogant. He's looking at them saying, you are not here because you're superior to the Jews. He's saying the Jewish people were not cut off and removed because you were more worthy, more deserving than they were. They were cut off because of their stuff, their unbelief. And you, you are only here by grace through faith. So what's Paul saying to the Gentiles? He's saying, yes, you're here, you're in. But never, ever, ever, ever forget how you got here. And why you are here and others aren't. And who brought you here? Why? Because when you forget those things, you forget why you're here, then you forget your creator. And you forget your savior. And you become proud. And you no longer want to follow God. You want to be God. An attitude to avoid and misperception to abandon. 
Thirdly, a warning to heed. Verse 21 to 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, that God's <laughs> kindness to you, provided, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Attached to these cautions about not becoming arrogant toward the Jews and not forgetting that it's only because of God's kindness that you are where you are. Attached to these cautions is a stern warning. The God who did not hesitate to cut off his own set-apart people will not spare the Gentiles if they do not continue in his kindness. They too will be cut off. Now what's Paul saying? Is he saying there's no such thing as eternal security here? Piper's very helpful. I can't possibly improve on this. The Bible teaches that God will cause his elect people to persevere to the end in faith. Not perfect faith. Not without struggles. Maybe not even without huge struggles. So the Bible teaches that absolutely. But the Bible also threatens Christians in general that if they make shipwreck of their faith, they will be lost. And the reason, and the reason saying these kind of things to believers, that is that they may be cut off, is not inconsistent, is because these threats are one of the means that God uses to keep his people, his genuine believers, faithful to the end. When he gives a threat like, don't become proud, don't boast over the unbelieving Jews, because otherwise you will be cut off, the true believers take it to heart and they stand in awe and they fear and they tremble at how fragile they are and how dependent on grace they are and how crucial their authenticity is and how urgent it is that they prove real in their behavior. And in this way, the threat serves to keep them from falling. On the other hand, the pretenders, the people who are not really spiritual, only going through the religious motions, do not tremble humbling at the warnings of the Bible that may even use the doctrine of eternal security or perseverance to justify their indifference to these texts. That is a sign that they're in great danger and may not be true Christians at all. So along with these words of caution to the Gentiles, Paul issues this stern reminder, this warning about being cut off to the Gentile believers in Rome. Because Paul knows he's talking to a church, this gathered, visible community of people who bear God's name, and Paul knows that every visible expression, including this one right here in this room, but every visible expression of God's people is always a mixed bag. It's always a room full of genuine believers and unbelievers. It's a room full of those who are going to persevere to the end and those who will at some point turn and walk away. Which recalls the sobering words from 1 John 2. They went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John's not talking about people who are truly saved and then somehow lost their salvation. 
He's talking about people who showed by their lack of continuance that they never possessed it in the first place. They went out from us. They were not of us. They were with us. But they weren't of us. Finally, not only is there an attitude to avoid and misperception to abandon, a warning to heed, there's a hope. There is a hope to embrace. And even if they, he's talking about the Jews now, even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. You know, the issuance of warning is simultaneously a reminder of hope. The warning exists because God is holy, because the sternness of God is a reality. But by the same token, hope also exists, and it always exists because of the kindness of God. Because His mercy is as much a part of who He is as His holiness. And what Paul sees and declares here is that this means that there's hope for Israel. He has a firm expectation that someday, one day, somehow, the natural branches will be grafted back into their own olive tree. There will be a responsiveness, a turning from within Israel. Now, precisely what Paul means by Israel, we're still coming to that. But for now, it is enough to note the very real hope that Paul has that God can and he will work even within and among those who've been cut off. And the thing that Paul refers to in these verses as a supporting reason to have and maintain this sort of hope is an example of what God has done with the Gentiles. Paul says, if you Gentiles, like some sort of wild olive branch, were taken and grafted into a cultivated olive tree, if God can do that, which is contrary to nature, that's not how it's normally done in our Bora culture. That's not how they do it. Paul knows that it's contrary to nature. It's the opposite But he says, if God does that sort of thing, then surely it's not hard to believe or think that he can take a branch that once belonged to the actual tree and graft it back in again. To put upon the God's able to reconnect the present hardened, disconnected people of Israel to the root, to Abraham, and the blessings contained therein. Two things quickly and we're done. I said it last week. I think it's worth saying again. Be encouraged by what Paul is picturing for us here. A God who moves in big and powerful and, yes, mysterious ways. uh, Guiding the direction of whole nations and peoples to serve his overall purposes. Who makes and keeps promises. Who takes centuries, even millennia, to work them out. That's his pace. Millennia. Secondly, never forget... Never forget how you got here. Because when you forget that, when you forget why you're here, when you forget that you were grafted in not because of yourself but in spite of yourself, when you forget that you're here not by merit and worthiness but by grace through faith, you forget those things, at least two very bad things happen. One is you forget your creator. Creator, you don't fear him. But in your pride and arrogance, you want to replace him. You want to usurp him and his authority and place in your life. The other thing that happens when you forget how you got here is that you look on those 
who are disconnected from him. Not with compassion and brokenness, but with disdain and scorn and pride. What happens is that you look at someone in their unbelief and in your heart and your mind, you mock them. You comment about their stupidity and foolishness and you're impatient and dismissive and condescending. Why? Because you have forgotten how you got where you are. And whenever we feel these kind of things and think these kind of things, what's the subtext? The subtext is, well, I'm here because of my superior intelligence, my superior grasp of what is going on spiritually in this world. No, you're not. And not only can our failure to remember how we got here affect the way we look and respond to unbelievers, it can affect the way we respond to believers. Sometimes we look at our fellow Christians who are struggling with some sin or some great issue or sinned against us or offended us in some way, and we can have this arrogant attitude toward them that is absolutely devoid of grace or compassion, and it's full of pride and a sense of spiritual superiority that betrays our memory problem and shows that we truly have forgotten where we came from and how we got here. And because we've forgotten, we feel and act superior to the lesser sinners around us. And this is sort of this, this ugliness. We don't remember how we got here. This ugliness descends upon us. We become these really hard to put up with, arrogant Christians. And what people need actually to see from us is not arrogance, but humility and brokenness and a keen awareness that we really do believe that we are one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And if you're sitting here and you feel the weight of this, if that is where you are, and it's how you've been, please realize two things. It is ugly. My arrogance is ugly. Your arrogance is ugly. And it's got to go. It has got to go. But also realize this. It's ugly, but yes, praise Jesus, it is covered. It's covered. It's paid for. There is yet grace to be found. Grace that truly is greater than all our sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as fellow Gentiles with the ones to whom Paul wrote so long ago, help us to hear and heed these words of caution and warning. Help us to avoid the misperception that forgets who we are and how we got here, who wants to constantly sneak in some notion of worthiness or deservedness that has made us yours, that gives us an edge over somebody else. Help us to avoid and put to death daily and persistently the pride and the arrogance that is so contrary to who you are and what you're producing and will produce in all those that are yours. Help us to persevere to the end and show ourselves to actually be what today we appear to be. Father, please change us. Change our hearts from the inside out. Make us persons who, because we remember how we got here, 
are compassionate toward unbelievers who are lost and to believers who are as broken as we are. And keep our hearts soft by showing us enough of ourselves to be truly humbled. And yet with that, enough of your cross that we might not lose hope and give in to despair. And we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. And I'll take up an offering for those who want to support the work of this church and various ministries that we support throughout the year through South Baton Rouge.